winter. Hello and welcome to What We Do in the Winter. This is the 67th episode of this series of podcasts from the Isles of Mull, Iona, Ulva, Gometra and Erid. I'm Alistair Satchel, I live outside of Dervig in the north of Mull and I'll be your host today. I hope this finds you happy, whatever and whatever you may be. This episode is a conversation with Neil Jardin of Iona, a fisherman who runs Iona Seafood, a fantastic local business providing both the local and international markets. This podcast was recorded both as a podcast on its own and as research for the film Creel of Stories, Cleave and Chenichish, which tells the story of fishing cultures in the Ross of Mull and Iona. The film was produced by Celia Compton for Southwest Mull and Iona Development, SWIMED, funded by Year of Stories from Visit Scotland. Creel of Stories was filmed, directed and edited by myself. It features original music by Hannah Fisher and Soren McLean and fantastic drone photography by Gordon Bruce of Iona. If you want to see the film, please follow the links in the podcast notes or on our website. Alternatively, you can find it on YouTube and Vimeo. The conversation I had with Neil was recorded on Zoom, which means the sound is, as ever, somewhat crunchy here and there, so I do apologise about that. We cover loads and loads of ground in this episode. Neil's early life in Iona, his adventures away in Australia, the development of his working practice, and how he balances his work and family lives. Since we recorded this podcast, Neil and family have welcomed a new member to their family, with the arrival of Corrie, who was born at the end of March. Talking of the Jardin family, episode 48 of What We Do in the Winter is a conversation with Neil's dad, Mark, and his stepmother, Anya, if that's of interest to you. We end the podcast on the nature of the difficulties facing fishermen in an ever-changing political environment. Fishing needs to exist in balance with the environment. Every single person I've spoken to is connected with the fishing industry recognises this very, very deeply. At this moment in time, April 2023, there's a real threat to fishing communities, which are called the highly protected marine areas. If you feel as strongly about this as so many of us in our island and coastal communities do, please listen on after the interview with Neil and I'll talk briefly about the consultation process that's underway at the moment and how you can make your views heard, whichever way you feel about this issue. Right. With great pleasure, I now pass you to Neil Jardin. Who are you? My name is Neil McLeod Jardin and uh, I'm a fisherman on the Isle of Iona. That's my full-time job now. For the last six months, I've been a part-time dad and a part-time fisherman. So I don't know if I can call myself a full-time fisherman at the moment, but that's what I have been doing. Me and my wife are sharing childcare at the moment. So I'm doing a bit of fishing and a bit of childcare. And it can be a, a tricky one sometimes to figure out which one's harder but <laughs> they're both they're both equally re- rewarding I would say at times and and difficult as well there's a lot of catching in both of them <laughs> <laughs> there is uh, especially at the moment she's the wee ones just started walking so uh, there's a lot of going after her and then grabbing her before she gets into into something she shouldn't well you hope there's a lot of catching involved in both but sometimes <laughs> uh, with the fishing it's not always there's not always that much there or not as much as you want you know well, this is the very interesting time to talk about such things as well with with the red list and everything coming in as well but but let's go yeah. let's, let's dig further deep into um into your background where were you born I was born in Edinburgh. People quite—you get a lot of people ask. So, were you born? Are you born and bred on the island? And you say, well, yes, as close as is possible these days. I was born in Edinburgh, but my mum and dad were living on Iona at the time, so they just went to Edinburgh to have me. So, I was born in Edinburgh um, in Elsie Ingalls Hospital, uh, which is was also where my wife was born, and uh, so we've. Uh, that was one of the main reasons for naming our daughter Elsie. Oh, fantastic! Um, so, yeah, I we're in there. I believe it's no more now, but that's that's where I was born, and then home straight away. I think, and uh, spent the first few months of my life in a caravan, and then moved moved up to a wee house up in kind of the middle of the island, up at Moyle Farm. We're in the cottage there, and then in 1995, so I would have been, uh, I think. 10 or 11 at the time we moved down to no sorry early a wee bit earlier than that we moved down into the village and that's the house that my dad lives in now 
I basically spent all right up until I left high school. I was on Iona. Yeah. Fantastic. Elsie Ingalls is a fantastic character. Her story is not celebrated enough. She's a real pioneer of women in medicine. I, I don't know much about her. I should know more about her considering I was born in a hospital named after her, but I don't I don't know. You've was she a, what was she? Was she a nurse or a she was a doctor. She was an extraordinary doctor. doctor. Yeah, she was right. a real pioneer of of women in medicine and um yeah, there's a big story to be told there. So yeah, your daughter's named after a very significant lady. There's no two ways about it. <laughs> well, that's, I should, it's a bit bad, really. I should know more about her, but... Uh, it's a beautiful yeah, name, though. Go and do some Googling now. Yeah, oh, it's it's a yeah, it's a very very interesting story indeed. It's, a, it's I reckon there's a there's at least a couple of films in there, <laughs> which oh, is a good okay. thing. So. Oh, I, oh, definitely. I'll look into it. Aye, so you went to primary school in Iona. Then can you tell me what was primary school like in Iona, and what you know what were your mum and dad doing when you were at school as well? What was the what was their work? My dad uh, was the postman. Uh, for I think most of the time that I was at primary school, if not all the time I was at primary school. So he did the post, he did it on a bike, bicycle, which these days I just, you can't even fathom it, you know, how that, how that would happen now with all the Amazon parcels and mm, everything. It's just, you know, uh, well, you wouldn't be able to do it, I don't think. But that was what he did. And I think that, if there was a big delivery for one of the shops came, then I think he maybe borrowed somebody's van or he also had a a big, like a push barrow thing as well that he could use to, to go short distances with some of the boxes. But most of the mail got delivered on the bike. So he was a postman, but he also worked in the Argyle Hotel as the sort of handyman. And my mum also worked in the hotel too. And that's how they... That's how they came to you when I was, they, they got a job in the hotel over the winter being the sort of caretakers. And so they they came to Iona because of that. My mum, yeah, my mum worked in the hotel um, and did sort of waitressing, I think a bit of everything actually. So my dad was doing the post, but then he, he wanted to start doing boat hire charter which is what he does now full time so he got a, he's probably i'm sure you'll have talked to him about this but anyway he got he got a wee a double ender boat the spraygle that was his first boat he did trips and that and then he gradually built it up to the point where he could he could go with that full time um so yeah that's what that's what they were doing when when i was at primary school primary school was good it was it was that it was a great place to to go to school it was you know, you were outside a lot, and yeah. I suppose it was a good. You got, I think we got a very good standard of teaching because the the ratio of pupils to teacher was very low. So you know, we were getting, I we're getting lots of teacher time. So yeah, oh, was it just I, the one I teacher when you were there as well? Uh, there was well, there was one main teacher, and then there was teachers came over. So we had an art teacher come over, um, Barbara uh, McLean came over to oh. do art, and uh, we had try to think who else there was. We I think towards the end of my primary school, they were starting to do stuff via video as well. So I think we had a, I think we maybe got a was it music or something else? I can't. One of the subjects a guy phoned in as it were and did wow. the video so what I guess was a very early version of what we're doing now yeah um, I think I go to primary was one of the first schools to get this video link thing that they had because I remember they got us talking to um, Terry Wogan about it <laughs> um, I think he was in radio I think he was in radio too at the time uh, and so we had to have this phone call with him and they were I basically making a song and dance about the there was this fancy new video call and uh, and then I think they, and then they gradually rolled it out across other schools so then you could kind of call up different schools and have chats with them so I think we did it with Collins a wee bit nice um, so aye all that I think we're quite lucky the school was quite lucky in that sense that we got yeah we got access to things like that you know quite early on maybe so. Oh, that's brilliant, yeah. Very cyber kind of yeah, the cyber looking forwards kind of way of doing things. I think it was all still the still the kind of dial up, you know, the making the funny noises when it connects and all that sort of stuff. But it seemed to from what I remember, it seemed to seemed to work. So 
That is brilliant. Amazing. So, so you went to um, secondary school in Oban High School. Um, how how was Oban? Uh, Oban was it was good. It, it had well, it had ups and downs. It was. Yeah. I think I found I found the first few years I think quite difficult. Just being away from home and just you know getting to know different people and I uh, just the hostile environment. Um, it took me a wee bit of getting used to. Um, but the the last couple of years, I, I was only at school for five years. I didn't do a six year. Mm-hmm. I left after after fifth year. And the last couple of years, fourth and fifth year in particular, I, I really kind of I don't know. I guess maybe I'd kind of settled in by that time. And um, yeah, I really enjoyed the last couple of years. But by the end of the fifth year, I was ready to leave. Um, so aye, it was it was different definitely than maybe your normal. Uh, high school that somebody in uh, high school experience that somebody in Glasgow or whatever mm. might have but it, I think it was good because I, I think it gave us gave me certainly a sense you know kind of being quite happy with independence from an, quite an early age really yeah. you know because you were away you were away five days a week from yeah. from 11 years old um, yeah. and so you just had to get used to it and so I've never, I've never really had a problem with being away from home. I struggle with the Monday mornings, um, which do. is funny now because <laughs> the job I'm in now, I'm up Aye. early, you know, most mornings. But I really didn't like the Monday mornings going away on that early ferry, and then you were on the bus, and then you were on the other ferry, and then you got to school, you're straight into school, and but the, the time after after lunch came, I was just falling asleep, couldn't you know, couldn't stay awake on a Monday afternoon. Ah, it was good. It was a good. Uh, you know, I'm I'm very glad that uh, I went there. I'm glad mm-hmm. I didn't get sent off to some. Well, not that my parents could have afforded it, but I'm glad I didn't get sent off to a private school. Or, uh, Hogwarts. <laughs> you didn't get that letter from Hogwarts. <laughs> no, I think that would have been a. Yeah. No, thank goodness. No. <laughs> so, it was a good experience for the for the most part. your working life start and did it start at sea or did it start on land no it didn't start at sea really uh, the, my my sea background really just comes from my father mainly mm-hmm. so you know he's ever since we were we he's always had boats or been involved in boats and so we get into we get into the boating side of things the seaside of things from that uh, and we always had me and my brother had had dinghies, you know, wooden ding we wooden dinghies when we were younger that we learned, you know, mm. to to do stuff on the water with, I suppose. Yes. Um but no, my working side of things, I, I worked in the hotels here um when I finished school and I was at university in Stirling after I finished school. I mm-hmm. did a gap year but they went to Union Stirling. So I, I did lots of different things, but none of it really to do with the sea. And went abroad for quite a long time. And Lovely. My first kind of introduction to fishing, I suppose, or it was kind of in a roundabout way, but I was out in Australia and I was working just on a, a kind of working holiday visa out there. And I started working for a, a fish company out there. That they were quite a big company that they owned four or five different boats and the boats were long line boats. So they were going to weigh out for couple of weeks at a time and wow. uh, fishing for for swordfish mainly uh, swordfish and tuna were the two main ones but they were got marlin and sharks and all sorts of stuff so i i didn't work on the boats i worked just in this on the shore side of things but we helped unload the boats we helped with all the maintenance side of it so if a boat went on the slip then we would do the, the painting and all the rest of it and the main thing i suppose was when when the boat got unloaded we worked in the factory i suppose it was and we were processing uh, all these fish big fish and they were getting sent uh, mainly to japan and, and america for 
for the sushi market. So wow. that was, I guess that was my first kind of uh, introduction to commercial fishing, which is strange because, you know, growing up here, there's there's plenty of commercial fishing boats here, but I never I never worked on anything. I did a day maybe once with um, with Tom Burkett when he had a boat here, but I didn't do any deckhand stuff here. Um, it was only when I came back after being abroad that there was kind of an opportunity to to do something with the fishing, and I thought, well, why not? I'll give it a go and see see how I get on with it. Um, so amazing. Yeah. That's that. That must have been quite something. What What was the scale of that fishing in Australia? Was it Was it really Was it much larger than than anything you'd experienced? Well, anything you'd you'd known of here in the UK, or was it kind of similar to to, to some of the bigger um, operations? Well, now that you know, now I've been a fisherman for ten years, I suppose, and I you know I, I read the fishing news and I you know see what there is around. And probably the closest thing in comparison in in the UK. Is actually the they're mainly Spanish boats, Spanish and French boats that work long lines, um, usually much further north um, up. You know they come into Loch Inver and Liverpool quite a lot, so and they're going way out west of Lewis and and west of Shetland. Um, they've not got a very good reputation, no. but the, no. that's um, that's probably the closest thing we have in this country to what was happening out in Australia. Probably the biggest difference is that the fish that are being caught um, by the, the boats here, the, the Spanish boats are, you know, they're going for hake and uh, I don't know what else, mainly smaller fish. Mm-hmm. But these these boats out in Australia that, that the, the company I work for own, they were, you know, they were targeting big fish. You know, they were going for, for tuna um, and swordfish and some of them were coming in at, you know, quarter of a ton sometimes a fish would weigh you know a, a big size swordfish or a, a good size tuna um would be aye you know 250 kilo no problem at all um so it, it was aye it was it was it was an amazing place to work and i actually i loved it it was very hard work but it was it was a great there was a good team and uh, it was it was just very interesting to see how that side of things operated it's, it's not like i came back here and and was able to set up something like that doing, doing that here <laughs> i own a swordfish company <laughs> <laughs> but it did i suppose it just got me in that sort of frame of mind of you know just seeing how how a, a commercial fishing boat um is kind of set up and how it works and yeah um because there are similarities even the, the wee boat i've got you know the, there are certain things that are kind of similar so and that that kind of started started me off i suppose and then when i came back here like i said um it was actually davy kapatrick that had he's got and he still has it um this wee dinghy mm-hmm. just a wee 16 foot orkney dinghy lovely wee boat and but she had a license mm-hmm. and so i said to david when i came back that you know he he wasn't really using the boat and i said well would you be interested in me using it you know i'll take care of the boat and you know and um, look after it make sure you know it's all it's all good and um, if i can kind of use it and you know use the license put stuff through the license and so he was happy with that and so that's how it that's how it started when I came when I came back to Iona, and that's how I got started. That's fantastic. Yeah. That's that that really is. Um, DK is is such a great person within this sphere. He really his knowledge of of fishing and the culture of fishing and also the industry of it is is remarkable. What is it about? Because I'm not knowledge about these things. What is it about the license for a boat that means that you can do that? What what is the permissions that that license gives you? Well, so there's different there's different types of license, but mainly on the west coast of Scotland, it's mainly about the shellfish. So mm-hmm. it's a boat, a, a registered fishing boat. If it's got a license, it, it'll either have a shellfish entitlement or it won't. Mm-hmm. Um, but even if it doesn't, as the Davies boat doesn't have a shellfish entitlement, but you're still allowed to catch. Uh, five lobsters and 25 crabs a day mm-hmm. um, and so for the size of boat that Davies was 
and the number of creels that I started fishing with, which was hardly any, that was enough. And it also, I also started fishing for for prawns for langoustine um, when I kind of came, when I first started as well. Um, and the, there's not really a a limit on the langoustine if you don't have a shellfish license. Um, you can catch pretty much as many as you want. There is a quota, but it's I was never going to get anywhere near it. Yeah, so that basically Davy's boat didn't have a shellfish license, but you were you can still catch a certain number. Uh, the boat I've got now. And the one I had previous to that, the Lusulu, did they both did have shellfish licenses. So that basically gives you um you can you can catch unlimited, basically. You can catch unlimited amounts of amounts of shellfish. Um and as long as it's as long as you've got the license to do that, then there isn't really a limit. The fish side of things for the, again, for the size of boats that I've worked with, there's never been an issue really with quota. Um, there are certain quotas attached to some of the fish species. So mm-hmm. likes of pollock, which I or life, which mm-hmm. I catch, does have a it does have a quota attached to my license, but it's really quite high, and now I've never come anywhere near to to um, to get close to. Yeah. The only one I've ever had issues with. Um, is safe, which uh, or coli. Mm-hmm. Um, they've all that's the problem with fish, they've all got about 10 different names. But, um, yeah, yeah, uh, safe is what we would call them. Uh, and for quite a while, when I first started fishing, safe was actually closed in this area, so you, you couldn't catch safe here, which is just madness because they're by far and away the most common fish you get you catch it you know if you're using hooks and lines like i do quite often if i'm trying to catch pollock or pollock life i can't you know i won't be able to get through the safe to get to the pollock because there's just yeah. too many of them so you yeah. keep catching safe. so for a while it was closed off and in the end i spoke to fisheries and said look you know because there is a market, a limited market for safe. I, you know, I can sell it sometimes to the hotels if they're looking for a kind of budget yeah. option for folk. Um, and if people don't want to spend a lot of money, then then safe's quite a good option. Yeah. So I said, I just, I think I just emailed fisheries one time and just said, like, what can you explain to me why safe is closed in this area and has been for years? Because you know I can't understand it. You know, there's loads of them around. And they never really gave me an answer. But then a few weeks later, I checked the the variations list for, you know, that shows you what species are open and closed in the different areas. And lo and behold, the safe was open. So, and it's never, and I don't think, uh, as far as I know, it hasn't closed again. So I was quite happy with that. But I don't, I don't know if it had anything to do with me or not, but I'll, you know, I'm, I'm glad that the, the outcome, uh, Changed regardless, but um, that's amazing. There's so many questions that come to mind from what you're saying. Could you describe for me your first day at sea on your own? How did that feel? <laughs> it was probably an absolute shambles, but I, I, I can't remember. So, I mean, so when I first started fishing, I was going out. Uh, in the Golden Dawn, which is Davies the dinghy, mm-hmm. uh, and I was doing it part time. So I was working at the hotel as well. I was doing it part time. Sometimes I would. I didn't have many creels to begin with, so I'd, I'd got a few secondhand ones. David had actually got some prawn creels made from uh, McDougal's, um, so I started off using them. When you look back now, and I look back at what I was doing then. It just seems absolutely crazy. So that <laughs> boat it didn't it didn't have a hauler, you know, it was it was an open dinghy, so it didn't have a hauler in. So we were, I was hand hauling all the creels and uh the prawn creels, the, the crab ones are heavier, but they were I was only working them in I think just single creels or maybe sometimes two together or mm-hmm. um the prawn creels, I think to begin with I worked fleets of five. Um, or sometimes six maybe and now like the boat I work on now I work fleets of 40 Mm -hmm. Um, some of the bigger boats will work fleets of 100 but Mm -hmm. (laughs) so I was working fleets of five and hand hauling them and because the prawn creels got to go in deeper water so they're sort of 50 50, 60 metres 
most of the time. Sometimes Goodness. a bit. We tried. <laughs> we tried. We tried a couple of times. There's a quite a deep patch. Uh, they call called the Tango Hole, which is a bit uh, mm-hmm. out out towards Staffa, and uh, it goes down to I think the deepest bit in the charts, 150 meters. Mm-hmm. And I put I put a fleet of crails in there one time, and I never did it again because to haul them back <laughs> to haul back up from 100. Whatever meters, it wasn't. Uh, it wasn't very much fun. And I, if I remember rightly, I don't think I got very many prawns out of it. Did you get so, quite a lot of tangle instead? <laughs> Just to... <laughs> well, it's but that's, they call it a tangle home. It's the trawlers that the, the they called it that because I think quite often they would get quite a lot of weed in there in the in the trawl when they if they towed through it. But uh, it never. I don't. You do get weed in it sometimes, but it's it's never bothered me too much. But anyway, so so I that was the started off just with a hand haul and and it was good in some ways. Well, it was very good in some ways because from a safety point of view, you were never really working that many creels to you know to get yourself into problems. You know to get a rope wrapped around or whatever. Yeah. Uh, and the mechanical side of things was very basic, so there was no haulers, there was no hydraulics or anything to to get. Caught up in. Yeah. Um, so because I had never done any commercial fishing, really, you know, I think if I'd have gone straight into a boat that had all that, you know, had, you know, I was if I was working lots of fleets of creels and and you know, uh, I hydraulics and electrics and all that stuff, then I probably would have, I probably would have got myself into all sorts of problems yeah. because I wouldn't have known really what I was doing. Um, but because it was a gradual thing, you know, started off the hand hauling and just kind of learning. And that, that first couple of years, uh, I did it. I lost quite a lot of creels because, well, with the prawns, I was maybe putting them in the wrong place. Uh, and so they would get towed because they were too far out. So the trawlers would come and just tow through them. Uh-huh. Uh, and I would maybe, the crab stuff, I would probably be putting it too close in if there was a swell. So then they would get you know, washed up on the shore or lost or whatever. So, yeah. you know, it was le- a, it was a gradual learning process, but because because I was only working limited numbers, you know, the losses weren't too bad, yeah. if that makes sense. I don't yeah. know. The other good thing, I suppose, about it, which I do miss now, is that it was nice and quiet. Yes. Um, because now I've got, a, I've got a power pack in the boat, a hydraulic, you know that runs the hydraulics, so it's noisy, yeah. noisy all the time. You're you're working, and the engines are they're bigger engines, so they're quite noisy too when they're running. And um, whereas with the with the Golden Dawn, once you go out to whatever creels you are hauling, yeah, you could you could either turn the engine off, or even if the engine was just idling away, it was just a wee engine, so it didn't make much noise. There was no hydraulics, so sometimes you're just sitting there, and it was. It was, you know, if it was a quiet day, it was lovely. It was nice and peaceful, and uh, mm. I, I miss that a wee bit. <laughs> My ears miss it as well, I think. Let's go into the business side of things now. How, who have you sold to? over the different points of your career and how did your current business model evolve from that journey? So when I first started, I was selling, I think, just to the Argyle Hotel, which was the hotel I was working for at the time. Mm-hmm. And then I gradually just kind of built up things to, um, I think, the Heritage Centre Cafe on Iona maybe started taking crab off me. Mm-hmm. So I was doing that as well. I wasn't at, at the point when I was using the Golden Dawn, I didn't land anything um, to to the merchant, to the shellfish merchant, Paul, which is PDK, Paul Knight. Mm-hmm. I wasn't landing anything to them for the mm-hmm. first, I think, couple of years at least because I basically wasn't catching enough um, to, to really make it worthwhile to do that. Yeah. Um, so I just started off doing it locally to, to businesses mainly to begin with and then when I went full time with the fishing which was that was 2015 mm-hmm. and that's when I got the 
the Lucy Lou, which was she was a bit slightly larger boat, but still pretty small, really. Um, so I went full time, and at that point, I then started doing a wee bit more advertising. So I started actually, you know, looking to sell to to Joe Blogs off the street. To begin with, that was really just an Iona. I didn't really wasn't really doing much on Mull just from a kind of logistical point of view. Mm. Um, and also because I, I couldn't really, I, I don't think I could have kind of kept up with the demand anyway. So I was doing, yeah, when once I went full time at the Lucy Lou, I was, I was selling to the, the two hotels in Iona, the Heritage Centre Cafe, sometimes to the restaurant here. Uh, and then I started doing a bit more private sales and that just kind of built and built. And then, yeah, I guess it got to the point where I just felt that the boat I, the boat that I had was not really big enough for, you know, it, it wasn't particularly comfortable for me. Uh, and I felt that there was still a bit of room to to build the, the private sales mainly. Mm-hmm. Um, and so... At that point, I was then thinking, right, well, I'll need to, you know, get a bigger boat. <laughs> uh, to quote Jaws. So that, that's, yeah, I know, <laughs> going to need a bigger boat. Um, so, yeah, and so it's just it's just been a gradual, just a gradual building, really. And I guess the merchant side of things, I did start landing to PDK to you know the vel- velvet crab mainly mm-hmm. um i think i started that maybe a year or two years after i got the lucy lou the the, the second boat i had mm-hmm. um and i i've kind of just kept doing that so i still land to them as well so it, it all the velvet crab that i catch goes goes away goes to the merchant goes to to paul for export and then if i've got excess brown crab and lobsters then I would sell them to him as well. Mm-hmm. But this sort of time of year, summertime, most of the, the crab and lobster stays stays local. And the prawns, the langoustine and the fish, they are never they all just stay local. Um I only I only fish for prawns in the summertime or, or basically between April and, and sort of October time. So I don't I don't land them to to the merchant and the same with the fish. Are the prawns back this year already? So I started quite early this year. Normally, I don't, yeah, just because Easter, the hotels were open quite early here. And when I first started back, which was, I guess, end of March, they were very good. And they've dropped, they've just kind of gradually dropped away. I don't know if that's just because nobody had been in the ground for a wee while. So, you know, maybe there was a kind of accumulation there. I'm not quite sure, but they go up and down a lot. So, they don't, you know, it varies a lot with the tides, and um, well, I'm still trying to work it out. But aye, they're they're not been quite as good the last couple of weeks, I would say. Um, but there's there's enough about at the moment to keep me going anyway. So that's that's the main thing. And at what point did you open up your, um, I wouldn't say facility, but your 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 storage boxes uh, on the pier <laughs> at, at Vinifer? What, what did what, when did you open that up? Do you mean like the wee what? Do you mean the wee sort of collection boxes? Yeah, right? yeah. Uh, on Iona, I used to do deliveries. You know, anybody who ordered on Iona would always deliver whatever they'd ordered to them. And Mull, I wasn't doing as much in Mull really up until, I suppose, really COVID hit, mm. um, which sounds a bit strange. But um, basically, when when COVID hit, the first lockdown, I had just got my new boat. And so it took me a wee bit to get that ready to go. Um, but then once it was, I then was raining to go and keen. And um, I guess because people were kind of locked down, then I thought, well, maybe there's a... And also the hotels here weren't open, so I wasn't really having much business custom. You know, I wasn't selling anything to the hotels, really. So I was looking for an outlet to, to sell stuff more to private folks so i started up a a text message list like a kind of mailing list on mall on the ross and mall yeah basically i would go over once or twice a week and folk would come down to the pier and meet me and they i, I would kind of message 
earlier on in the week saying, this is what I've got, this is what I'm likely to have, do you want anything? And people would come back to me and say, this is what I want. And it was kind of first come, first serve. Mm-hmm. So yeah, so people would come down and, and meet me at the pier at Finnefer. And then at the same time, I bought a, yeah, like a big insulated cool box, basically just a massive big cool box. And that's on the Iona side. And so now if anyone orders anything on Iona, it gets put into that cool box and they come and collect it. And it's basically, it's just for me, it's a time saver because mm. uh, yeah, I, I don't, especially with the wee one now, I don't have as much time to to, um, <laughs> to go around delivering orders all over the place. And sometimes, it was silly sometimes, you know, because you were, somebody would maybe order one macro or two macro. Oh, <laughs> no! In a way, you know, not, not that Iona's a very Bring big you. island, but no. you, were, you were driving from one end of the island to the other to deliver, you know, a couple of couple of wee fish. So it was, it was taking up quite a lot of time. So I just thought, um, right, so that that that's there's a big cool box in Iona, and then on Mull, we've just I've kind of just got a an unofficial drop off point. So any orders that go to Mull, they just get dropped at the the top of the pier at Finnefer, and people come down and and collect them, and then just return the boxes to the same place. It seems to work quite well at the moment. The only thing is sometimes people they're worried about how to pay. Because you know cash doesn't really happen anymore, and yeah. um, I do take card payments, but I have to be there to do yeah. the card payment. So I just try and get everyone to do bank transfers. Um, but sometimes I get, you know, especially this last year and this year, more foreign customers now, and and they're, you know, sometimes they struggle to do the, yeah. the transfer. So, but we can all, you can always find a way. It always works out. You know, you can. Have you, you can used? Have you used, if I was in Ireland recently and a guy was paying me for a ticket that I had for a concert, Revolut or Revolut? Revolut? I've uh, heard of it. Is, that, is it a bank as well? Uh, it? It's a currency transfer device. All ah, right. Okay. Uh, I'll send you the link to it. Um, ah, I'll send it. I'll write it down as well. Yeah, it's, I have um, heard of it, but I didn't really know what it was. I think that might be good because it certainly. Um, it, Jay, my friend in Ireland, was like, "Do you use Revolut at all?" I was like, "I beg your pardon, what is this?" And so, you know, it was it was on the tip of his tongue. So I think it's elsewhere, but it's maybe just not part of our culture yet. So maybe for European customers that are coming across and foreign uh, Americans, that might be the way to to do well, things. I had, some, I had somebody pay me today. Um, I think she was a Malaysian woman, and she bought some stuff, and I'd said bank transfer would be best if you can, and she said, "Oh, I'm not sure," and then she ended up paying me by via paypal yes but but and that's fine but then paypal take the fee yep and so actually you know i ended up there was a few quid got knocked off you know she paid me the, the full amount that yeah. you know i charged her but by the time it got to me yeah it, you know it lost it a bit and it's the same the, the card sure. payment isn't as bad but i was a wee bit when i you know when i saw she'd done paypal it's a bit like oh you know because all you know all these wee fees here and there they all add up yeah. well you need to trade them I'll, bitcoin bitcoin for scallops oh, i don't think i can afford that uh, <laughs> how much would one one macro be in bitcoin <laughs> I, don't, I, I don't know i don't know quite well but is, is one bitcoin not worth like thousands and thousands of pounds it's something like know. that it's something ridiculous yeah it's quite quite insane but well that's great there's um that you've given us such a clear picture of how the the market works for you and how you've built the business is just fantastic. One of the questions that I do have about this project as well is that um, the people that we don't see so the people that are ashore when the fishermen are away, can you tell me who are your significant others when, who are ashore and what do they do when you're away? And what do you, what's your picture of, of like Isla's life and that when you're away, what does she sit longing by the shore? Oh, he's over there. But, what, oh, <laughs> no, definitely not. She's no, she's, she's got plenty of her own stuff going on. Although she did say, cause I've the boats on, um, is, you know, it's got one of it's got AIS, so you can oh, track it. You can yeah. go in the 
you can go in the app and check it. And I, she did say to me that she does sometimes look and see where I am. So that was nice. But no, most of the time she's got plenty of her own stuff going on. Um, so she, you know, she's she's manager at the craft shop. Um, I own a craft shop. So she's very busy with that. Um, they're in the process of building uh, the, a new premises across the road. Um, from the existing craft shop, which I think is due to be finished in the next couple of months. Mm -hmm. So they'll be busy getting stuff transferred across there. Um, and then, of course, there's the wee one as well, Elsie, who's now 15, just about to turn 15 months old. So mm -hmm. she's, you know, raring to go. <laughs> she's quite a, quite a force, I think. You know, she's our first, she's our first one, but from what I gather I think she's quite she's certainly strong willed put it that way so um, yeah that whoever's got her on each you know basically what we do is we um, we do day about so I'll I'll fish then I'll be working then I'll fish I'll be working and that goes through and then on a Monday we try on a Monday to have a day off altogether and um, that's that's how it's supposed to work it doesn't always doesn't always work like that but that's, that's the kind of general idea so yeah the days the days whoever's got her um you're kept pretty busy on those days um and then the days you're working that's that's you i, I you know i tend to start pretty early i'll be usually out well this at this time of year i'm on the go sort of any time after half past four or five o'clock um and then but then that the good thing is that means I'm back in reasonably early, so I'm usually finished by two, three o'clock, um, and then I've got a couple of hours to do paperwork or yeah. fix whatever needs fixing, and you know there's always stuff to do. Busy, but it's it's good. Good. One last question, then. Uh, we talked about when we spoke on the phone as well, but the nature of the red list coming up yeah. and what that means for the the economies of fishing, because there's not one economy of fishing. There's several different scales and economies of fishing. How does the red list uh, situation affect fishing and the future of fishing in this area, to your mind? It's a real tricky one to to sort of for me to to answer. I know how I feel about it in terms of my business and the way that I operate, but I am cautious of being seen to speak for the whole of the West Coast or even the whole of the Mull fishing community or, or the even the Ross and Mull and Iona fishing community because what I'm doing is... It has, you know, there's a lots of similarities to what other fishing boats are doing, but there's also differences as well. And so I think that, well, I think that the most recent red list thing that came out, which is why I posted about, and it's, you know, it's had a lot of attention. I think it is a silly, short-sighted and ill-informed thing that thing that's done. Sorry, that's my. <laughs> That's my fire page. It's not a real call out. It's a Tuesday night. Okay. Um, so I'll just, I'll actually just take the battery out. Hold on. Oh, no, don't worry. Yeah. They, te they, they test the pagers on a Tuesday night. Nice. I'm just trying to take the battery out because otherwise it'll just keep going off. <laughs> <laughs> right. There we go. Um, to do this blanket sort of thing of avoid eating creole caught crab and lobster from the west coast of Scotland. I just I just can't see the sense in that. Because what it's doing is it's it's basically, you know, if if somebody who is maybe maybe a little bit cautious about eating seafood or they haven't done it much or they've, you know, they haven't tried it before, but they're keen to try it. But, you know, say say they are interested in having some seafood from me or another similar company outfit on the West Coast. And then they see this guide and it's it's red list, don't eat it, avoid it. Well then that's they're losing out on the experience of trying fresh local shellfish. And we as business people are losing out on on the revenue. 
So I think it's a real shame. And yeah, it you know, there are issues, I think, with um, stock management in certain areas. And I think if you speak to other fishermen who have been who have been doing it for longer than I have, then they will may well say to you, oh, it's not, you know, there aren't the numbers that there used to be. Mm-hmm. Um, and that may well be true. But for me, I've not been fishing that long in the grand scheme of things. And I I don't I don't run that big an operation. So for me, I haven't really noticed a big decline because of those reasons. So for me to be lumped in with all the rest of, you know, to, for the for them to just say, well, you shouldn't eat any crab and lobster that's caught in the west coast of Scotland, no matter where it's come from, how it's being fished, who's fishing yeah. it. I yeah. think that's just, well, it's, <laughs> it's unfair, you know, it's, it's not fair and it's that's wrong. That's the fundamental issue, yeah. Right, it's, yeah. it's wrong. And, you know, the, the reason that they've the reasons that they've given for people not to to for people to avoid it such as the the entanglement issue which I think has maybe I think they've maybe gone back on that a wee bit um, okay. because they realized that you know it was a bit ridiculous what they'd said but for that and then also to, to say that because there's a, a lack of data about how much, um, stock how many crabs and lobsters there actually are because there's a lack of data well if there's you know they're saying well if there's a lack of data then you just should avoid it but surely if there's a lack of data well we maybe need to find out actually how many there are before we start saying well yes you should definitely eat it or no you definitely shouldn't you know the jumping to conclusions a wee bit I think. when the groundwork hasn't been done yeah 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 so it's a tricky one and I just hope I just hope it doesn't have too much of an impact on on everybody, you know, not just myself. I just hope it doesn't. And you know, my hope is that yeah, that not too many people read the read the good fish guide or, or pay too much attention to it. But um, you know, that's yeah, it remains to be seen, I guess, what will happen. But it's a very fine place to to end the conversation. I think as well. that's <laughs> a, a point for the future. There's and there's something to come back to in twenty years time and go. Well, remember the on red list. <laughs> yeah, yeah, so, yeah, yeah, we'll we'll see. It's 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 yeah, it's a tricky one. It's, it, I I almost fell foul of it myself actually when I first really? was kind of reading about it because there's MS. There's very clever. There's MCS, which are the ones that they've they've produced a good fish guide. But there's also MSC as well, and you see the MSC sticker and lots of lots of things and. The MSC side of things is great. You know they're doing really good work, yeah. um, but uh, they, it, it, because they're so close together, I think people, including myself, sometimes get confused, and so yeah. it just it muddies the whole thing up a wee bit. Yeah. Anyway, anyway, well, thank you so so much, and don't forget to put the batteries back in your pager and uh, <laughs> get a good night's sleep. Yeah. Anyway, <laughs> I'll do it right now. You'll hear uh, it, beep. Hold on. Beep, beep. There we Fantastic. go. I'm back on. I'm back on the run. Thank you so much for your time on this, Neil. It was a great pleasure indeed to spend time with you recording this and being out in the boat together as well. I look forward to catching up with you again soon. I've tried to keep what we do in the winter as overtly apolitical as possible so as to welcome as many participants and listeners in as possible. But if you've listened to all 67 episodes of The Beast so far, you can tell that it's implicitly political. It's a reflection of people and communities, which in itself is a political act. So please excuse me a moment of overt politics. As I mentioned in the intro, this is a particularly tough moment for the fishing communities on the coasts and islands of Scotland. The Scottish Government are looking to bring in highly protected marine areas into Scottish waters. To quote the Government's website, The Scottish Government is designating at least 10% of Scotland's seas as highly protected marine areas, HPMAs. Work will begin in 2023 to find the most appropriate locations for HPMAs before sites are designated in 2026. If you're listening at this moment in time, April 2023, there's a consultation that you're invited to contribute towards to make your thoughts on the matter heard. 
The final date that you can contribute by is April the 17th. A local group here in Mull has started called the HPMA Campaign Awareness Group. They say quite clearly, We are a group of environmentally committed island residents, not involved in commercial fishing, who are becoming increasingly concerned about the potential impacts on the islands should the highly protected marine areas be imposed upon the marine environment around Mull and Iona. If this proposed legislation is enacted, it would see the end of any form of commercial or recreational fishing, seaweed harvesting and restrictions on a wide range of other marine-based activities. This has the potential to seriously harm the communities of Mull, Iona and surrounding islands, with the depopulation of working-age families, depopulation of fragile school communities, the loss of traditional and sustainably centuries-old ways of life. It could have a hugely detrimental effect on the island's economy, and no locally fished seafood would be available for islanders or visitors. If we do not respond to this consultation, the government could assume it has our agreement. So that's their perspective on it. If you agree with that, you might want to consider filling in the consultation. Now, it's a particularly difficult form to fill in, which uses tricky and unclear language. Recognising this, the Scottish Islands Federation has prepared a draft series of responses that, should you agree with them, you'd be welcome to adapt if you wish to fill in the consultation and have your voice heard on this matter. And you can find a link for this on both the podcast notes and on our website for this episode. Of course, in the sense of political balance, if you feel strongly about this on the other side of the debate, please do fill in the consultation. It's vital that all voices of those concerned and who will be affected are heard. And thank you so much for listening to this political rant for a couple of moments. Now, if you wanted to support the podcast and the archiving project, as it does take a hood of a lot of time, please feel free to click the donate tab on whatwedointhewinter.com. But with things changing and the crises of living and everything, obviously do not worry at jot if you can't or don't want to uh, contribute at all i totally understand i'd much rather have you with us than not but on that note thank you so much to our monthly supporters i know i say every single time but really when i see your names coming in on the feeds um it just brings such a great smile to my face so thank you so much for being with me all this way It's, it's incredible thank you i'll be back again soon with another conversation with a local person a dear friend whose tales i cannot wait to share with you Right. Thank you so much for listening, and see you next time. Take care wherever you are. Bonan tang. Shinakate.